0: He made his Major League debut at the age of 28, then disappeared for another five years after his 5-4 record with a 2.35 ERA just wasn't good enough for the then New York Giants. But in 1950, he got another chance, and this time he stuck, going 18-4 and became a fixture on the Giants pitching staff. The difference was now. He made his living by owning the inside part of the plate while giving batters a close shave. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the career of Sal, the barber magnet. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome once again to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks for joining. And today, an old friend of mine will be stopping by, Peter Gordon, to talk about one of the most dominant pitchers of the early 1950s, Sal the Barber Magley. Sure. There are those of you out there who have heard of the Barber, but I bet very few of you know of his struggles and his persistence to get to the big leagues and finally make it with the New York Giants. And that's part of what we're going to explore today, Magley's early struggles, his journey to Mexico his transformation into the Barber via the tutelage of Dolph Luque, and the incredible games, historic games, that Magley was a part of. Before we get there, however, just a quick reminder that you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes, look for our page on Facebook, or check us out on the web, SportsFH.com. It's a great place to read more about our guests, more about the Forgotten Heroes we have discussed, and to see who's scheduled for upcoming podcasts. Also, today's episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Every week, I let all of you know about Audible. It really is a terrific way to get your reading in, and... If you sign up for a free 30-day trial, you get a free download, and Audible sends Sports Forgotten Heroes a little something to keep this podcast going. There's close to 200,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Give Audible a try, free, at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Today's guest, Peter Gordon, has been a member of Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, for many years, and he has written over a dozen biographies for Sabre's Biography Project. He's contributed to several Sabre books, is the author of Two-Car Garage, a book of poetry which contains several poems about baseball, he blogs on his Tampa Rays, and so much more. I've known Peter for over 20 years, and am very pleased to have him join us now to talk about Sal the Barber Mag. Peter, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so glad you could
1: join me. I am thrilled to be here. I you know, love talking about baseball.
0: And uh, you're somewhat of an expert on the New York Giants, the New York Baseball Giants.
1: Yes. Well I've I've been a member of the Society for American Baseball Research for years, I mean since the eighties. And I've gotten at this point I kinda lost count, but it's over sixteen books which have my contributions, including one about the famous nineteen fifty one Giants that Magley was on. And uh, also I've I've have uh, other things I've done. I write for baseball blogs as well, and I'm uh, I, I also have a Book of baseball poetry called Let's Play Two, Poems About Baseball. So Very cool. I, I like to think of myself as an expert.
0: Very, very cool. Hey, so let's start here. What kind of pitcher was Sal Magley? Tell us about his game and how or why he got the nickname The Barber. I'm sure other pitchers also threw the ball high and tight.
1: Yeah, but he cultivated that image. And a lot of it was him. A lot of it was when he started pitching for DeRocher for the Giants, because DeRocher was a brilliant psychologist for all of his players. He learned what made them tick and how to motivate them, and he figured out what worked for Sal. But he was famous for throwing high and tight inside. But then he also had a tremendous curveball that was going that would go down and away. So he back back out the plate. High and tight, and then he threw the curveball down and away, and everybody just sort of missed it. <laughs> and it helped that he that he pitched in New York, where there was still to this back then, and still to this day, the media center of the country for a team that was one of the best teams of its time. Sure, and he. The nickname stuck, and he he reveled in it.
0: How much did his physical appearance contribute to the name or to his aura?
1: Well, it it helped a lot. But first of all, he was 6'2", 180 pounds. Now, these days, in 180 pounds isn't a lot, but he was a very big guy for his time in the early 1950s. He also wouldn't shave the day of the game, so Mm -hmm. he'd have this... Black stubble, he had dark black hair. He was uh, born from Italian immigrants, and he looked like a gangster out there on the mound. He would glower at people. He would cultivate again. He cultivated the image of somebody who would throw at you as soon as look at you. (laughs) Now, now the interesting thing is, his wife and the people who knew him said. Off the field, he was a really nice guy.
0: That's where I was going to go next because that's not mm-hmm. who he was. Not Sal the barber off the field. He was actually a pretty generous or courteous guy who just enjoyed life. Um. So, yeah, compare his on field demeanor with his off field demeanor.
1: Well, Sal was born in Niagara Falls, New York. His birthday was actually April 26, 1917, so during World War I. He was the third and youngest child and the only son for his to his parents. His dad was uh came over from Italy and had a high school education and was a laborer. His mom was um never went to school, but both of them were the typical immigrant parents. They wanted better for their children and but they also taught their kids the right way to behave. And Sal grew up uh, basically expecting uh, to be a factory worker, be a laborer, just like his friends, just like his his parents. In fact, um, he he couldn't. His high school didn't have a baseball team, hmm. it, but he was a good enough athlete that he was uh, offered a basketball scholarship at Niagara University. Right. But he turned it down because he loved baseball and he was a good ball player, even in the nineteen thirties and forties.
0: No, no. But yeah,
1: his wife. I'm sorry, I was no, going to answer ahead, your first ahead. question. Yeah, keep going. His his wife very famously said that uh, she had she heard all this Sal the Barber meme stories and didn't believe it, and then watched a game on TV one time and saw the beard and saw the the <laughs> glower in his eyes and said, "Oh, now I get it." <laughs>
0: Where, where did his affinity, his love for baseball come from? Because in doing my research for today's podcast, I read where his parents, and like you said, his father was an Italian immigrant. His mother had some sort of a, I guess, like a peasant background. They, yeah. they didn't like the game. And in fact, um, from what I read, he actually wasn't that good at it. Um, In fact, like you said, he was a really good basketball player, was offered that scholarship to Niagara University to play hoops for the Purple Eagles, but he turned it down so he could continue his pursuit to play baseball. Where did that love for this game come from?
1: He just always loved pitching. Now, you remember in the years he was growing up, in the 1920s and early 30s, baseball was the sport. Uh, yeah, there was a little bit of professional basketball, but the NBA didn't, didn't exist. Football had some pro teams, but it was very chancy. All football players worked extra jobs. Well, actually, mm-hmm. baseball players, too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. baseball was the sport. He just he loved to go out and play every day. And you could also do that in those days. You could go out and find a bunch of kids playing in a sandlot and just go and pitch. And while... It, I think he liked to say that he wasn't that good. In fact, any body his age that was offered a basketball scholarship was a really good athlete. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon, even though he started having jobs at places like Union Carbide and chemical plants, he always played for the company baseball teams. All the all the teams had company teams back then, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a big deal. You know, just. Like we would have softball teams now for game for right. Years right. work like they they actually played baseball. that's what they did, so he became known as somebody who could play on those teams and play what they call semi pro baseball where you'd get a few dollars or split the gate in the Niagara Falls area. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like he was being scouted by the Yankees, even though they were in New York City or the Red Sox or any of the other any of the other major league teams. He was not one of the young people that they were dying to sign, but he just kept playing because he loved it.
0: I think his first shot at professional baseball came via a tryout with the Rochester Red Wings of the international league. And after just something like three pitches, the tryout was over. So, so first, how did Sal secure a tryout with Rochester? And second, How bad was that tryout that he got to throw so few pitches? And I'm going to ask you a third question. Again, even after he didn't have such a great tryout, where did his drive and passion for baseball come from that he still pursued a career as a pitcher?
1: Well, back in the 30s, although minor league teams were often affiliated with major league teams, they were also independent businesses uh, going back into the early days of baseball history, uh, there were minor leagues before there were major leagues or they, they started at the same time and they were just like major league teams, except in smaller cities. So they would sign players and they would have tryouts and they would play and, and they would pay people. And there were local minor league stars mm-hmm. Now, by the mid thirties, which is when Sal first started to get involved in thinking, you know, could I make, could I at least make these pro teams that was beginning that, that system was beginning to be over. You know, major league teams were, were beginning to develop their farm systems, but Rochester just always would have open tryouts. And a lot of times there was, they didn't really do it. They didn't do it because they wanted to find people. They did it as public relations. It was like, if you were, if you're a fan of the, the Tampa Bay Rays, like I am, and the Rays had open tryouts, they would let anybody. So I would go down, they'd watch me throw 45 miles an hour, and they'd get rid of me. <laughs> Can you throw it uh, that fast, Peter? <laughs> I, I don't know. I might. It's been a while since I've been on the Braider Gun. Uh, but it, it, the same thing happened. They didn't expect to find any talent, so they didn't. And by the way, that, it's very common. Phil um, Rizzuto tried out for the Brooklyn Dodgers before he signed with the Yankees uh-huh. and the Dodgers just ran him and they just cut him cause he was the smallest guy. Uh-huh. So and that was actually also, also in the thirties. So that's why that happened. But the thing is he was good enough that right after the, the red wings dropped him, he was still able to join a local semi-pro team. I think it was called the Niagara cataracts which would make sense not the eye but the cataracts are you know the where the rough water is in the niagara river right okay and he played enough in the local area that steve o'neill who was the manager of the buffalo bisons the the buffalo team thought he could pitch and they and got him and and picked him up steve o'neill is a tough guy, former big league catcher, knew a lot about pitching and would later imagine the majors. And that was also a time where you could sit on a minor league squad for years and never get called up to the majors. It's not like now where everybody knows all the major prospects. As soon as you sign in your 19, they know if you're good or if they think you're going to be good. There, you could sit up there in Buffalo for years and, and Sal did. Bobby's was three years in double A and kept pitching badly. Yeah. He, they, they O'Neill kept him, but he he just he didn't pitch well. And finally in nineteen forty he was sent down. They minor league teams had affiliation agreements with lower teams and he finally had a good season in class D with the Jamestown Falcons. Wow. And if you notice if you that was Jamestown New York, if if you notice Uh, All these teams were local teams in upstate New York. There were enough teams there that needed players that somebody like Sal, who could sort of pitch at that level, could kind of hang in until he turned out to be ready.
0: Mm -hmm. So, So he bounces around in the minors, up and down, up and down, and the war came about. And like most, Sal Magley is going to go join the armed forces, but he failed his physical for some sort of sinus condition, goes back to the minors, bounces around Mm -hmm. a little more. He quit, joined the workforce, and still had a hunger to play baseball. He gets back in the game with the Jersey Giants, and in Mm -hmm. 1945, somehow – Sal Magley finds his way to the major leagues with the New York Giants. So talk about that period of time and what prompted his call-up to New York. What did Mel Ott, the team's manager, the New York Giants manager at the time, see in Magley that gave him the confidence to call him up?
1: Well, a lot of that was because they were desperate, too. In 1944 and 45, all the able-bodied men were working in in defense plants, or they were working, or they were at at war. Remember, Bob Feller was in the Navy. Uh, The Jackie Robinson, although he wouldn't have been in the majors in 45, was with an army unit. Many, many baseball players went to war, and many of them fought. It wasn't like, yes, some of them ended up playing exhibition games, but Bob Feller was a naval officer. He he was in battles. So they needed people. Remember in 1945, the Browns were playing Pete Gray, a one-armed outfielder, literally one-armed. A one-armed outfielder? Yep. That's how
0: desperate some teams became in order to fill their rosters. So, the St. Louis Browns, a team that had won the American League pennant the previous year, 1944, and were struggling at the gate, signed Pete Gray, the one-armed outfielder. Sure, it was also some sort of publicity stunt by Bill Veeck to put fannies in the seats. But Gray actually played a competent outfield. At the plate, however, it was a different story. Gray had great difficulty with breaking pitches because by not having a second hand, he couldn't hold up, nor could he alter his timing mid-swing. Still, though, Gray hit 218 with six doubles and two triples. Not bad for a guy with one arm. And, by the way, despite some of his teammates not liking Gray because of the supposed publicity stunt, the Browns' winning percentage with Gray in the lineup was 600, and without him, it was 425. Overall, the Browns went 81-70 and 70 in 1945. It was the last winning season the Browns had until they had moved to Baltimore in 1954. So at the same time, the Giants were looking for players to fill their roster, and that's when Magley got the call.
1: He was 28, you know, no one would consider a 28-year-old a prospect exactly at that point, but they they were playing a lot of old guys. You know, Ernie Lombardi was the Giants catcher in 45, he was 37. Mel was still playing at 36, he actually had a pretty good season, but that's because the, the um, competition was so bad. And if you look at Sal's record that year, they, he was a spot starter. He went 5-4, and four, but with one of the best ERAs on the team, 2.35. It was actually the best of all the starters. Hmm. But he wasn't the barber yet. He was just Sal Magley. He was another guy pitching.
0: Right, and he becomes a barber in just a little while. But let me ask, yes. you, let me ask you this. So before he got to the Giants, he couldn't get into the Army. He quit the game and then went back. What happened there?
1: Well, what happened there was uh, actually, again, not an uncommon thing to happen. Sal's passion had a passion for baseball. He loved the game and he loved to play, but it was also a better life than working in a factory. Mm. It was working in a chemical plant in Niagara Falls. It's hard manual labor. There were no computers then. And baseball was a much better lifestyle. You got paid more. And if you made it and of course, yeah, I mean guys were hitting balls at you. There was, it was a rougher game, but he got to play, Mm -hmm. you know, and if he could have made it to the majors when he ultimately did, he was making a lot more money, but everybody needed able bodied men to work in those defense plants. And they were getting paid a great deal of money. So, A, to help the war effort. Sal was very patriotic, as you would expect the son of immigrants to be. He also, Niagara Falls was his hometown. That's where he liked to live. Mm -hmm. That's where he did live. I mean, if you think about, it's almost like, I don't want to use the term secret identity, but I guess I just did. (laughs) It was like when he became Sal the Barber Magley, the most feared pitcher in the National League, that was not the guy that was Sal Magley, the Niagara Falls resident. Mm-hmm. You think like of you might think of baseball players as being guys who you know go home, or, or rather they they only live for spring training. Sal was a guy who was a Niagara Falls resident, a family man, and went to baseball to be this other guy to earn the good living that he could provide for his family.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's and that's also why he went to work for the defense plant. It was the patriotic thing to do. He was earning regular money. He could get to go back home. But he just couldn't stay away from baseball, and he was able to find that he could still pitch at a time when everybody needed a good pitcher. Right. I mean, he was a rookie at 28 in 1945. Exactly.
0: He was, he, 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 was, he was an old rookie. And like you said, he went a respectable 5-4 and four with the Giants in 1945. Enter... Mm-hmm. Dolph Luque and a most interesting time in baseball. First, tell us about Dolph, another of baseball's forgotten heroes who went 194 and 179 during a 20-year career for several teams, including the Giants. Talk to me about Dolph and and then tell me about Dolph and his relationship with Sal.
1: Well, Dolph Luque pitched for a lot of teams and was probably the most successful Cuban-American or Cuban-born pitcher in the majors prior to World War II. I feel pretty comfortable making that. Mm -hmm. He was certainly the most famous Mm -hmm. Cuban-born pitcher. And he was the pitching coach for the Giants. He had pitched for the Giants, and I guess he got along well with Noah. And when he saw something in Magley and asked him to go down to the Cuban winter league. Again, mm-hmm. remember uh, back then guys would pitch in these winter leagues and that's how they would make money. And Cuba was very, uh, a very popular location. A lot of, a lot of great players played in those leagues and he pitched for the team that Luque managed. And Luque was known as a guy that could throw a good curveball, as a guy that was tough. And a guy who was not afraid to throw at people. And pitching for Luque, he tried to he also tried to influence Maglay to to do that, to Mm -hmm. throw Mm -hmm. at guys, Mm -hmm. to be tough out there, to to pitch to win. And let's face it, fear is uh, sure. Fear is a factor when you're a batter. Sure. Especially and here's the other thing we need to remember about that time. Nobody wore batting helmets.
0: Right, right. Forgot a pitch, that a
1: pitch at your head could kill you. Right. So he was he was in Cuba for two years, uh, among other things, pitching for Luke and becoming a much better pitcher.
0: And this is where the story takes a a, a pretty unique turn because this is I'm I'm guessing you're you're going to start referencing another major league that was about to launch, basically, the Mexican League. And Sal signed on to play for a team called, I believe, the Pueblo Parrots, and Mm -hmm. that was managed by Luque. And baseball commissioner Happy Chandler wasn't, well, he wasn't happy about the Mexican League, and he banned all major league players who jumped to the Mexican League. So, yeah, continue on. Tell us more about that period of time.
1: That was a very odd time. it's almost they, The Pascual brothers, Jorge and Bernardo, were very wealthy Mexican businessmen, and they thought they could create a league after World War II that could compete with Major League Baseball. And they offered big contracts to guys, to some players that went down. I think Mickey Owen, the Dodgers catcher, went, and a few other people did. Because it was all about the money. Now, baseball took the position that these players had jumped their contracts. Some of them may have signed contracts. And, of course, back then, the reserve clause bound you to a team for life, essentially. Mm -hmm. That's the way that Mm -hmm. that worked until, until the arbitration in the 70s. So when the players went, Happy Chandler said, well, you're banned for five years for jumping your contract. Um, Magley actually was in spring training in 1946 and he felt that Millat, despite he, after his great year, didn't value him. He also felt that, uh, you know, he wasn't getting paid what he thought he deserved to get paid. And remember, Magley had had a good year, but he wasn't a big star. It was Luke who was managing the, the parrots that wanted him and that made it made the offer. And Magley, I, I was, I've always been unable to find exactly what he was getting paid, but mm-hmm. he was getting paid a lot more than he would have got paid in the major leagues.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's where he turned, started turning himself into the barber. He became known as a, uh, became known as, as, the toughest pitcher in the league. And also his curveball, which he had kept working on now was just a thing of beauty. It would, you know, it'd start out at your head and then just when you were thinking you were going to get hit, it would shoot down in the strike zone and break at the knees.
0: <laughs> Unreal.
1: So they say, you know, it's hard to find film of that. But it was, it would basically lock the right-handed batter in place. There was nothing he could do.
0: So whether or not the decision to play in Mexico in the long run was good or bad for Sal, one thing can't be denied. And that's he really learned his craft there under the tutelage of Dolph Luque. So was there anything else in Sal's game that changed at that point? What What did Dolph do with Sal to make him such a, a devastating pitcher?
1: He worked on his biggest assets, which were the fastball. And Luque was famous for his curveball, and I believe he, just basically he just kept working with Sal and showed him the grip and Sal kept working. Mm -hmm. And I think the, again, the drive that he had to be the best at that game finally came out in a place where after the first few months, the Mexican league was no picnic. I mean, the weather, what's the summer weather in Mexico? Like it's really hot yeah, and, and it can be dry and the parks were not in great shape. the, the, bonanza that the pascal brothers thought would happen didn't happen and although the players were getting paid and actually magley saved up enough from his two years in the league that when he came back to america he could live off of that money for a while hmm. uh, but you know the, it, the conditions were bad the parks were bad and he learned how to win under very tough conditions
0: For quite some time through the mid-1900s, baseball would face challenges from other leagues. In fact, Major League Baseball at first only consisted of the National League, thus the Senior Circuit. It wasn't until a battle for players between the National League and the newly formed American League, the Junior Circuit, was settled when the two leagues actually came together to form what we now know as Major League Baseball in 1903. The Federal League tried to make it, lasted two seasons with the Indianapolis Hoosiers winning it all in 1913 with an 88-65 mark, and the Chicago Whales taking the Federal League crown in 1914 going 88-64. By the way, the Whales were managed by Joe Tinker. The Players League lasted just one year, 1890, and was won by the Boston Reds. The Mexican League actually still exists today, but in a much different format and is played during our winter months, back when the Mexican League attempted to become an alternative to Major League Baseball. Players who jumped to it were banned from Major League Baseball. Eventually, however, a player by the name of Danny Gardella, who left the Giants to play in Mexico, challenged Commissioner Happy Chandler in the courts, won, and was reinstated. And that paved the way for everyone else to come back, including Magley. How did Sal finally get back to the majors?
1: Well, two things happened. One is the Mexican League, just the money wasn't there. As with many of these things, they were, un, they were more hopeful than financed. They thought if they got some stars, they would be able to make it work. After mm-hmm. a year or two, it, it couldn't work. Uh, that's not actually uncommon mm-hmm. uh, the Federal League, which was a third major league in nineteen fourteen and fifteen thought they could challenge the majors and ended up not being able to uh the players League back in the nineteenth century couldn't make it work so it's it's tough. You need lots and lots of money to build up your audience in major league baseball. They just didn't have it, and so when they couldn't pay him, they you know he came back to the u s and and for a while he was he barnstormed. That was also a thing they did back then. They, they, ball playing they would play exhibition games. Max Lanier, who, if you remember, the, the major, Short, the father of the major league shortstop Hal Lanier, mm-hmm. tried to put some together, but they couldn't bring in enough money. So he went back in 1948 to Niagara Falls, and he used his money. He bought a, a gas station mm-hmm. and tried to so he would have a business. And he bought himself a house, and that was what he thought he would end up doing. Hmm. And then he had, to, he had to go to the Canadian League, the Provincial League in Quebec hmm. in 1949 to to play.
0: Now, now during all this time, during all this time, were the Giants or any other teams watching him going, man, when Happy Chandler allows him back, I'm going to jump on him?
1: They, yes. The answer to that is yes. They, the, he wasn't the only guy that was still the property of a major league team. Sure. And they all were watching them. They they wanted him back if they could get him. Well,
0: in that instance, th- th- just one other question in re- in regards to that. In that instance, was he still the major league property of the Giants, or was he technically a free agent and any team could sign him?
1: No, he was always property of the Giants. All the jumpers. You know, he, the reserve clause existed. There was no such thing as free agency.
0: Right. I understand Uh, that. But I thought by if they were, if they had left the league and they were gone for a certain period of time, that perhaps something different. I understand that there wasn't free agency, but I didn't know if they were still, well, free to sign with somebody else, whoever came up and offered them
1: a contract had their original team not. No, no, not under the circumstances of the jumping. Because they, according as far as Major League Baseball was concerned, they illegally left their contract. Okay. So the only thing he could do was go back to the Giants if they wanted him, or if the Giants wanted to release him or trade him. That was mm-hmm. all he could do.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: And and he was fortunate because after he had a good year in '49, uh, leading the the Drummondville Cubs, I believe they were called, <laughs> uh, to to a championship, a Cub championship, right? Except in Canada. They they wanted enough to try. And what happened was Happy Chandler, some people had argued that the penalty was too harsh and Happy Chandler reversed himself. Happy was not the best commissioner of baseball ever had. Let's just put it that way. I think that's a fair <laughs> statement. Uh, but he does figure in the story because one of the other things Happy Chandler did was in 1947 when... Jackie Robinson was going to be the first African-American to play major league baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, happy Chandler banned Leo DeRocher for that year. Leo was going to be the Brooklyn Dodgers manager. Mm-hmm. And it, if you, anybody wants to know it, 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 you can read the reasons behind it. It was not really something that I, most people today think DeRocher should have been banned for a year. Uh, but in any case, that uh, part of it was to hurt the Dodgers because they were getting Jackie Robinson but it, because he banned him, hmm. when De Rocher came back, it, there were conflicts with Br- Branch Rickey in Brooklyn, and it just wasn't working out there. De Rocher became the Giants' manager, mm-hmm. so that in 1950, when Magley was allowed back into Major League Baseball, De Rocher was his manager with the Giants. Mm-hmm. And it was De Rocher who put the final polish on Sal the Barber. Okay. Be- and. Leo, yeah, what, Leo the, rog- the
0: lip. he wasn't exactly the uh most pleasant of ball players.
1: No, he was not. But one thing at his peak, which was in those years, was he knew how to which buttons to push. And he always said with Magley, he would get him angry.
2: Hmm.
1: When he wanted Magley to pitch well, when he needed him to pitch well, he would get him angry. He would call him names. Uh, language that couldn't have, that uh, couldn't be printed in uh, Leo's biography uh because, <laughs> because it came out in the 60s. But you can kind of know what he was calling them. And he said that was that was what he would do. And he also, because Leo encouraged us, he encouraged Magley to, to throw inside and, and nail the guy on the outside corner with the curve. And that's what he did. Yeah, I mean, remember, in 1950, Sal Magley... Was a wonderful person, off the mound, but was basically someone who had never had success in Major League Baseball. By the end of the 1950 season, he is a household name. Right. Everybody knows who knew who Sal the Barber was. Right. Yeah. And you got to give credit to Magley because he was throwing the pitches, but you got to give some credit to Durocher too. I think.
0: Sure. So so 1950 it took a little while, but finally on July 21st, 1950. Sal Magley broke through. He pitched an 11-inning complete game against the St. Louis Cardinals. The Giants won that game 5-4. to Something that day must have clicked because from there, Sal Magley became one of the best in baseball. He went 18-4 and that season, and at one point he threw four straight shutouts. He was a different pitcher. And then Mm -hmm. in 1951, he went 23 and 6. And in 1952, he went 18 and 8. He fell off a little in 53 going 8 and 9, and he had to deal with a bad back. But he rebounded in 54, the year the Giants won the series over the Cleveland Indians, and he went Mm -hmm. 14 and 6. One can only imagine how good he could have been had he not lost those four years because of the Mexican league, just how good was Sal Magley during that stretch? Oh, and what happened in 1953?
1: Well, like you, like you said, not, well, let, let's talk about how good he was in that stretch. I mean, you're also in 1950, he also led the league in both one loss percentage and ERA and in shutouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, he He was actually, was in the MVP. He wasn't really in the running. He was 10th in the MVP voting, but he would have won the Cy Young Award, except there was no Cy Young Award then. Right. <laughs> so he just exploded on the scene. The whole persona was there by then. Remember, he's 33 in 1950.
2: Mm-hmm. I think
1: he said that. But, but let's remember, 33 is when a ball player should be on the decline.
0: And he's he just, just really starting out. Yeah, he's just really starting out.
1: Yeah, and and there he he just scared everybody. I wish I I had more sabermetric ways of putting that, but I don't. <laughs> they, he had fear on his side. He had a great arm for those years. He knew how to pitch to the players. He also benefited, I think, because remember there were only eight teams in the league, so you saw everybody a lot. So he knew how to pitch to people. Right. He had, I mean, he had a good team behind him, uh, 1951, Giants brought up a player that you might have heard of named Willie Mays, <laughs> uh, but they had, the Wes Westrom was the catcher, Westrom was a really, really good defensive catcher, and he had DeRocher, who was at the time one of the great minds in baseball, Like he was the guy who came out in Magley, he, pardon me, I want to make sure, I, when I say he, or I, we know we right, mean Magley. Right. Magley, Magley was the guy who came out every day and did it. And loved playing that part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Loved being called Sal the Barber. If the guy at the plate is scared that you're going to kill him, you have a big advantage. Absolutely.
0: What happened in 53? He had a bad back. What, what, What happened there?
1: Yeah, well, he had a bad back. I mean, the thing to remember is he's... In 53, he's also 36 years old. And it's not uncommon to have problems when you get there. He had a bad back. You know, he, he used to, he bent his back a lot when he pitched, they had bigger windups back then. Mm-hmm. And he just, he just wasn't effective that year. It was eight nine four fifteen. It was just, it was unfortunate. But then he came back in 1954, as you pointed out, he couldn't pitch the same number of innings that he used to. Mm-hmm. I think from 50 to 52, he was pitching, well, he hit 200 innings in, or in uh, 50. And in 1951, the rocher threw him out every day. He pitched almost 300 innings, numbers 298, actually. Wow. So that's going to take something out of your arm, especially at 34. Oh, that year, by the way, 1951, the year the, that was the year also the Giants were third games back in August, and they yep. made a huge rush to the pennant. Yep. And they managed to tie the Dodgers the last day of the season, and they had the three-game playoff. Magley pitched the third game. Uh, yeah, which, he had
0: a great game. He struck out six. He walked four. Um, Gave up four runs. Tell us a little bit about Magley in 51 and just how dominant he was.
1: Yeah, well, he was. I mean, he won, He led the league in wins back when pitchers were expected to pitch the whole game and win. Right. You know, he he ended up having a 293 ERA but he was he was clearly the best pitcher. I mean again, fourth in MVP voting. Right. Would have won the Cy Young except there was no Cy Young award. He went 23 and 6 that year. Yeah, he went 23 and 6. He was not only was he dominant as a pitcher and always the guy that DeRocher would call on to win the big games, but again, he was famous. He was he was in all the newspapers. he was called Sal the Barber, which is what happened you know shaving the chin uh he would have feuds with players who thought he was who was they were afraid of him, but they also didn't want him thrown at him. He had a famous feud with Carl Farillo, the Brooklyn Dodgers right fielder mm-hmm. where they supposedly they never actually i don't think actually fought on a field, but they would always say bad things about each other uh he was he was the best at what he did. It must, it's a really nice thing Mm -hmm. to be able to say that about yourself.
0: Sure. Sure.
1: I hope we hope everybody listening can say that about themselves (laughs) at some point.
0: (laughs) Hey, like we said earlier, Sal had back problems, but recovered in 1954 to go 14 and six. And again, Mm -hmm. he was involved in another famous game. Game one of the 1954 World Series, the game in which Willie Mays made his famous catch off the bat of Vic Wirtz. But mm-hmm. 1954 was also the beginning of the end for Sal, at least for the Giants. In fact, the following season, he was 9-5 and five for the Giants, and midway through the season, they sold him. They didn't trade him. They sold mm-hmm. him to those same Cleveland Indians he had just beaten the World Series the previous
1: year. Why? The Giants made a lot of really bad decisions after the 1954 season. I mean, the reason they sold him was because he was old. They they thought his arm was going. They didn't Mm -hmm. think he could come back. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. But in in the event that he did come back, they didn't want him pitching in their league. Okay. And we'll so to that in
0: Cle- moment. We'll get to that in a moment.
1: Yeah, I know. But in, in 55, they didn't want that to happen. Right. He didn't, uh, Cleveland had in 1955, the, the best pitching staff in baseball. Uh, they had, um, I'm trying. they, they had,
0: uh, was there? Think, uh, they had early
1: win. That was right. Okay. And that was, they had Herb score who everybody thought was going to be the next big pitcher. and, tragically got hit by a line of drive the next Mm -hmm. year or two. I forget Mm -hmm. the exact year. Mm -hmm. They saw Bob Lemon, later the Yankees manager.
2: Yeah.
1: And they saw Bob Feller. Right. So they didn't really need Sal Magley.
0: They
1: need 38 year old Sal Magley. The interesting thing was in 1955, Sal Magley was 38. Bob Feller, who'd been pitching in the majors since the thirties, was younger than him. (laughs) That's crazy. Feller was 36. Magley was 38. Wow. So they didn't need Magley, and Magley didn't pitch very well. And Yeah, he didn't last in
0: Cleveland for long, though, because just after the start of the fifty six season, the Indians sold Sal Magley to, of all teams, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, once his biggest rival, now he was a member of the team that the Giants fans loathed. And he went 13-5 and for Brooklyn. So, I have a few questions here, and let's start with this. Why did Cleveland sell him to Brooklyn?
1: Well, Cleveland just wanted to get rid of him. They didn't need him. He started out. The, they didn't have a spot for him on the staff. I don't understand. I never really understood why Cleveland wanted him.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: maybe they thought his arm would come back. Maybe they thought if they put him in a situation with their great pitching coaches, with their with their team, he would he would be even better. But they didn't really need him. And Brooklyn wanted him because Brooklyn was thought he still had something left, mm-hmm. and the interesting thing is when he got to the Dodgers, the Dodgers all his rivals on the Dodgers, all the guys who said they hated him, Carl Farillo welcomed him because in baseball, the really important thing is can can they help you win mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they needed a guy who could start, and he had a great year, like you said, thirteen and five two point eight seven e r a pitched almost two hundred innings mm-hmm. and helped the Dodgers win the, that great Brooklyn Dodgers team, win their last pennant. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, yes, of course. Last one in Brooklyn. And he, Roy Campanella, the Brooklyn, the catcher for the Dodgers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, said, had this quote where, after having faced Magley for all those years, he couldn't figure out how come Magley kept getting him out. Campanella <laughs> was a great hitter. and he ended up um he ended up uh, after catching him he said oh okay now i get it mm. now i know what he's doing now i see how he's uh, 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 how he's getting me out
0: was selling a player a common thing back then why sell players and not trade them
1: well you needed cash back then back then most baseball teams were making their money off of attendance and the owners we're making their money off of the baseball teams.
2: Hmm.
1: So, baseball operations, being what they are, they they're a little bit uncertain. So, occasionally, you would sell a player for cash because you needed the cash hmm. and you didn't need the player. Hmm.
2: Okay.
1: And they also had um, they also had um, farm systems, so they could bring people up. And you see that a lot more than you see it now, although even today sometimes you'll see players being sold for sure, cash considerations.
2: Sure. Right, right.
1: You know, there's another interesting thing about that 56 season. Magley was not the best pitcher in the league that year. The best pitcher in the league was Don Newcomb, the, the other, the, other Do- the Dodgers ace. Right. But Magley, they did have a Cy Young award that year, and Newcomb won the Cy Young award, but Nagley finished second in the Cy Young voting and in the MVP voting.
0: Interesting.
1: Because they they saw that thirteen and five season being very impactful. Now you know I don't know that Magley was more valuable to the Dodgers than Duke Snyder was, but you know I wasn't there.
0: <laughs> How did Brooklyn fans react to seeing Magley in Dodger
1: blue? They really liked him. It's what you would expect of fans, right? You've been beating out my brains for years, and now we got you on our team. I'm sure there was some there was there was actually some initial. Mm-hmm. grumbling from fans saying why are we getting this guy mm-hmm. um we hated him right. but once he started winning they loved him in brooklyn that's again all they cared about was the pennant
0: what about giants fans
1: giants fans hated him they were really mad
0: but he had no he had he, no say in the
1: matter no but it doesn't matter he's playing <laughs> for the other team they hated everybody on the dodgers the rivalry was was so intense back then right uh the dodgers or the giants won the national league pennant every year from 51 to 56. Wow. It was, and, yeah, it was the Giants in 51, Brooklyn 52, 53, Giants 54, Brooklyn 55, 56.
0: And then who won in 57? Was it the Braves? 57 was the Braves, yeah. 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 What did Magley think about playing
1: for the Dodgers? Magley was fine with it. He was getting paid. Right. I mean, that's the thing. He was getting paid. He, He was happy to be, um, to be working for a pennant winner. The Giants didn't have a particularly good year in 56. And he got back to the World Series, which he loved. Actually, that was his – he beat Whitey Ford.
0: Right. Let's – hold on. Hold on on that. Hold on. Because before we get to the series, I have one more question about, about 1956
1: and Sal Magley. Okay.
0: So here he had struggled for a few years, and he recovers to go as we've said a couple times now, thirteen and five with a two point eight seven ERA. What gives? He even threw a no hitter when Brooklyn needed him to win a late season game. Yeah. Why? What? What happened? How does this guy who actually struggled for a year or two suddenly recover and go thirteen and five? 2.87 ERA, finish second in the Cy Young uh, voting, finish second in the MVP voting. How does he just suddenly
1: turn his game around? Well, see, that's the thing. It wasn't, he didn't suddenly turn his game around. What happened was he was healthy, but Cleveland had no spot for him. He wasn't going to break into their rotation. And they put him in a place where he could pitch. And he always liked pitching in Brooklyn even when he pitched for the Giants he he used the same thing he always used he still had the fastball and he still had the curve i mean you might say that not although he was pitching a lot in the 40s you might say that not having a major league career before then is one of the reasons why his arm was so good in his late 30s
0: right sure
1: so that's really what it was i i think they did, cleveland just gave up on him mm. but sometimes that happens you put you put the you put the player in the position where he can be successful, and he is. Right. I mean, Grocer said something about Magley where, you know, he said in the nineteen in his first big season, he said, yeah, I was such a genius. I had Magley in the bullpen for the first two months. <laughs> and, then I, and I let him pitch against the Cardinals, and then I was like, oh, yeah, then I became a genius. Right.
0: Hey, so in 1951... He's involved in one of the most famous games of all, Game 3, the famous playoff between the Giants and the Dodgers. 1954, he's the pitcher that Willie Mays makes his famous catch off the bat of Vic Wertz, And in 1956, once again, Sal Magley was involved in one of baseball's most memorable games. First, he helped the Bums, that's the Brooklyn Dodgers, beat the hated New York Yankees and Whitey Ford in Game 1 of the World Series Mm 6-3. But he lost Game 5 to Don Larson, which is one of the most famous games in the history of baseball. Larson pitched the only perfect game in World Series history that day. Magley, he wasn't too shabby that day. He gave up just two runs on five hits in eight innings. What did Magley have to say about all those famous games he pitched? Did, did he ever talk about any of them?
1: He talked about it. I think at one point he said, yeah, Larson had to pitch a perfect game to beat me that day. Because hmm. he had pitched a really good game. And he was, he was really just happy to be able to play and be a part of it. He wanted to win in the World Series. He wanted to succeed as much as i've I've said, and, and it is absolutely true, off the baseball field, he was actually a pretty nice guy, right on the baseball field, he was an amazing competitor who wanted to win all the time
0: what did and the that other was play, what it was. what did the other players think of him? What did the opposition and his teammates think of him during his career and after he played?
1: Well, during his career, his teammates loved him, and everybody else was scared of him. <laughs> And, and many of them said really mean things about him because they were scared of him. But his his big thing was he said, you know, you gotta you gotta move the batter's feet. That's what when he talked about throwing the ball inside, right? You know, you gotta. He said you gotta set him up inside, not the inside corner. You gotta throw it close to him to get him scared, move his feet, so that you could nail the outside corner. But yeah, his always his liked him when he was on the team because, like I said, off the field he was a, a really Good guy.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. But they loved having him. Right. As I said, baseball players are about winning, and Nagley really helped them win. So
0: amazingly, and- amazingly, the following season, 1957, Sal Magley was 6-6 six and six for the now Los Angeles Dodgers. Nothing special. But he was waived, and he was picked up by, of all teams, the New York Yankees. Sal Magley was the last player in baseball to play for all three New York teams. The Mets didn't exist yeah. at that time. For the Yankees, he went 2-0 in and 57, and the following year he split time with the Yankees and the Cardinals before finally hanging up his spikes for good at the age of 41. Sal Magley wound up having a solid career going 119-62, and 62, with a 3.15 ERA. How would you mm-hmm. sum up the career of
1: Sal Magley? He was one of the most famous players of his day. And one of the most feared players of his day. And as a competitor, he never gave up. Mm-hmm. I think in forty in 1958, his last season, he was 41. As, as you said, he just didn't have it anymore. You know, just like uh, I lost my fastball at 41. <laughs> but... But he he was great up until he was he was great through the age of 40, and there's not a lot of players who can say that. I think had he had the first half of his career, had he been able to get to the majors at 21, 22, as many other players do, sure. he'd be a Hall of Famer. As it is, he's just going to have to settle with being known as one of the greatest pitchers for the new york teams in the greatest era for new york baseball
0: one of the greatest eras of baseball period
1: well yes one of the greatest eras in baseball period of course but also that was a time and we talked about the dodgers and the giants Let's not forget the yankees were winning all those pennants in the 1950s at the same time
0: yeah some people don't so, realize how close these teams were and 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 for those that don't the giants and the yankees for lack of a better term, they they played across the street from each other. They didn't share a stadium. Their stadiums were basically built next to each other, and then you had to drive a little bit to get to Brooklyn.
1: Yeah, well, you could... I mean, the thing was, they were across the street kind of, but you did have to cross at the Harlem River, so you had to go from the hand to the Bronx. But, yeah, you could walk from one stadium to the other easily, from the Polo Grounds to Yankee Stadium. And, yeah, you had to go to drive to get to Brooklyn or take the subway as as the Brooklyn as the Brooklyn teams did. But yeah, it was it was an amazing era and he was he was one of the most feared and one of the best pitchers. Someone who was in the MVP voting, who was an all star. He, mm-hmm. he was Sal the Barber Magley. He was known outside of baseball as being really famous. Now I he loved the competition. I think and he certainly liked the money that he was able to get because of the fame it helped provide for his family which was very important to him but i think he was a little bit embarrassed is the wrong word he didn't quite know how to handle all the fame and he never did leave niagara falls except for baseball mhm mhm you know he always every year he would go back to his hometown and spend time with his family
0: if if there are people listening today who are only familiar with the pitchers we watch on on the telecasts today. Is there anyone that you could pick who you would say, well, they're not Sal Magley, but if you watch that pitcher, that's the kind of pitcher Sal Magley was.
1: There's two players that come to mind and let's start. I'm going to give you kind of an, uh, an odd one because he doesn't physically resemble him. He's a lefty and he doesn't, he only throws from the stretch, but David price. Hm. Well, I think about his, the combination of fastball and curve and his competitiveness. I mean, everybody in major league baseball is competitive, right? Right, right, right. But, but that's a part of prices game that a lot of people don't see. And maybe because I'm a, I'm a, I was a devil. I'm a devil raised fan or not a Rays fan later. So I saw price pitch a lot. Right. But that was a guy who was never afraid to take the ball. You know, if, if there was a way to help the team, he would come in, he would relieve, he would start, he would do whatever. And he wasn't afraid to throw inside. That's another thing people forget about him. Anyway, mm-hmm. he's been struggling this year with the Red Sox, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but in in terms of competitiveness and staring down batters, that's one. And the other one, because of the curveball and the fastball, and because of what he's doing now as an older pitcher, Justin Verlander. Oh, Wow. I would think. I mean, he needs he needs more of a beard. <laughs> I'd like to see him with a little bit more stubble.
0: <laughs> hey, of course, Sal's playing days were over, but his career in baseball wasn't. He wound up working as a pitching coach for the Red Sox, and he had a profound impact on the careers of guys like Bill Monbouquet, Earl Wilson, mm-hmm. Dick Raditz, and a few others. Raditz really credits his success to Magley but his time with Boston was short lived. Tell us about his time in baseball after
1: his playing days were over. Well, he started uh, coaching. Actually, the Cardinals thought he was done as a pitcher and, and actually they were they were right. Um, he was done as a pitcher, but they wanted to they made him a scout and a coach so that he could get his 10 years in the majors. And uh-huh. also he'd had a a, a real um he, he was having some problems at home too and his wife was sick mm-hmm. and uh he needed it he needed the job but he baseball was the thing that he really remembered you know was the thing he was best at so he started getting coaching jobs and he coached with boston for a while and in 1966 he um made a good decision because he got signed to a two-year contract as the pitching coach Mm -hmm. because in 67, the Boston Red Sox hired Dick Williams, a new manager and Williams wanted his own pitching coach, but the team uh, being famous for penny pinching said, "No, you got to keep Magley. We got him signed for another year. (laughs) And he and Dick Williams didn't get along because Dick didn't want him around and, and Magley knew he didn't want him around. But the big one of the big reasons they won in 67 was Jim Longborg's emergence. And if you look at what Longborg started doing in 67 was he started throwing inside and that was a direct hitting guys.
0: And that had to be the influence of Sal Magley.
1: It it absolutely was. And he Longborg won 22 games that year. He talked about, uh, to reporters, how he's you know throwing inside. He's not scared to throw inside, not scared to get guys moving their feet. And he was the ace for the Red Sox in that miracle season. Although the day after the after the World Series, uh, Megley got fired because Dick Williams just flat out didn't want him. And that's just the way it goes. I, I can't say that that's the reason the Red Sox didn't repeat his pennant winners in 68, but uh, maybe, you know, the pitching staff would have been a little better. Right. Right. But you know what? He he got picked up. He had a really interesting piece of baseball history. And what's because, that? Well, the Seattle Pilots hired him. In 68, uh, baseball announced expansion teams. And in 69, remember, baseball expanded. And Seattle became the American League, one of the American League expansion teams. Seattle right. and, were, and Kansas City. Right. There
0: were four and, teams that year, the Seattle Pilots, the Kansas City Royals, the Montreal Expos, and the San Diego Padres and Seattle only lasted one season before relocating to Milwaukee and becoming, as we know them today, the Milwaukee Brewers.
1: Yes, but you see, because Sal was the pitching coach of the Pilots, and I'm sure that was a tremendously frustrating job for a guy who pitched for the Giants and the Dodgers and the Yankees back when they were all winning, to pitch for a team that had no chance, to coach a team that had no chance to win. But he's an interesting character in Jim Bouton's famous book, Ball Four, which was because Bouton pitched for the Pilots, Mm-hmm. And that was his, in that book, of course, he had to deal with Sal Magley, and Magley does not come off real well in that book. Hmm. He Boughton portrays him as somebody who was kind of out of touch, didn't understand the younger generation, and I'm sure Sal Magley probably had problems with the baseball players that were emerging in the late 60s, the ones that wanted to form unions and uh, try to get free agency, things that Sal never had. And also, frankly, you know, Bouton was not the best pitcher on the team and, you know, was always struggling to get more starts. But it doesn't surprise me that that was his, Magley's last job in baseball. He, I'm sure he was burnt out. I'm sure he was upset. He took a job in 1970 back home. He was GM of the minor league Niagara Falls Pirates. And that was his last hurrah. He, started working as a liquor salesman, basically, in Niagara Falls. And that's where he stayed, you know, for the rest of his life.
0: Hmm. During your research of the New York Giants and Sal Magley, what did you find to be the most interesting aspect to Sal Magley's career?
1: Wow. There's so many interesting aspects to Sal Magley's career. Uh, well, give us the most the- fascinating one. The thing that fascinated me the most was how this nice, mild-mannered man with certainly a great deal of baseball talent made himself into Sal the Barber, the most feared pitcher in baseball. I think that drive, that desire for success, his need to win... To do anything to win, to change himself into a different person to win, I've always found to be the most interesting thing about him. And I believe his motivation, although obviously, you know, he's helped by Dolph Luque, and certainly Leo DeRocher helped him. It was his inner drive to be the best that I found the most fascinating. And what did it lead to? It led to one of some of the greatest pitching performances in baseball history.
0: Sure. Hey, talk to me a little bit more about his time in Mexico and just how good a pitcher he was there. And was he a league leader? Was he winning games? Tell me about his career in Mexico.
1: Well, he was absolutely winning games. He was, um, he had, again, Dolph Luque was his manager. And he was one of the best pitchers in the game. The conditions in the Mexican league were just not good. You know, the players who were paid a lot of money, at least they got the money, but they were told there'd be all these great big crowds. They were told they were be very comfortable stadiums. They were told they would have the best of everything while they were there. In fact, there were a lot of hot, dusty, 100-degree days. Was there, a lot, people,
0: was, there, was there a lot of teams playing then? And who were some of the other players from the majors that, that migrated down to Mexico?
1: Well, Max Lanier, who had been a pitching star with the Giants, uh, no, excuse me, not the Giants, the Cardinals was one of the big players, Mickey Owen, the Dodger catcher who very famously dropped that third strike in the 1941 world series was one of them. Um, They had, um, let me see. Take me a second to think about some of the other players. Fewer players went down to Mexico than they thought originally. Because at the end of the at the um, at the end of the day, the players that were coming back from the war wanted to play in the majors. They wanted to play in America. And they um, so they didn't get the people that they wanted.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm hmm.
1: Do you think
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. Keep going, keep going.
1: No, I was just gonna say, they, they played in, in places like Juarez, they played in uh, Mexico City. And they just they they had a lot of Latin American players and good Mexican players, but it just fell apart very quickly. They weren't getting the crowds, the guys ran out of money, their teams would disband. It was it was not a great situation. But that but Magley persevered and was tough. That was where he first started to develop that persona as a guy who would, you know, move the players, move the batter's feet.
0: If Sal Magley doesn't go to Mexico and doesn't learn under the tutelage of Dolph Luque, does Sal Magley make the major leagues? Is Sal Magley, Sal Magley?
1: You know, I don't think so. I don't think anybody's ever heard of him. The, the reason is it was much more common back in those days for good players not to be picked. The sort of scouting we have today when, Major League Baseball sends scouts everywhere, and everybody's got stats, and you can look at everybody's average up on the Internet. just didn't exist. There were a lot of very good players, minor league players that we call them today, in the 30s and 40s, who had very good careers in their hometowns or Mm -hmm. in the places where they Mm -hmm. went, but they never made the major leagues. Mm -hmm. And if Magley doesn't transform himself or learn how to win in the Mexican League, I think he gets sent home in 46 and 47 when the guys who had gone to war come back. That mm. happened to a lot of players.
0: And what about Dolph? How come we don't know who Dolph Luque is?
1: I I hate to say it this way. I think because he was Cuban-American, because English wasn't his first language, because he didn't have, at the end of the day, a Hall of Fame career. I mean, how many players do we know from uh, from the 30s and 40s who were really big today? Right. Still won 194
0: you know, so, games.
1: Yeah, I know. There's a lot of guys. There's guys in the Hall of Fame who uh, haven't won that many games. Yep. But he was famous enough at the time. Uh, he certainly played in Major League Baseball for a long time. But... He also played, oh, here's the other reason why we don't know about Dolph, I'm, I'm thinking, is because he didn't really play for any pennant winners. Ah. You know, he, he pitched for the Reds back in the 20s when the Reds weren't all that good. He pitched for Brooklyn in the 30s when Brooklyn was really bad. He pitched for the, he ended up with the Giants when the Giants actually were pretty good, but by then he was more or less was a Sunday pitcher uh, where he'd basically pitched once a week on Sundays. He was already in his 40s by then.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, I mean, he was a good pitcher. He pitched a, a lot of years. You know, he was 20 years in the majors. He won a bunch of games. He was a good pitcher for a long time, but he was never, except for one or two years, the best pitcher on his team, and his teams didn't win. Okay. So that's why, I mean, we don't know about him. I mean, do mm-hmm. we know... Mm-hmm. Who do we know from those giant teams of the 30s, yeah. Mel Ott and Carl Hubble, maybe. <laughs> right,
0: right, right. So back to Sal, you said that Leo the Lip Derosier, when he really needed Sal, he'd get under his skin, he'd aggravate him, he'd make him angry. How important was Leo in the development of Sal Magley?
1: I think he was very important. Number one, Leo gave him a shot. Nobody else really had. I mean, again, Leo talks in his biography, uh, Nice Guys Finish Last, I think is the title of it. He talks about how, um, you know, he had Magley. He basically, he picked up Magley in 1950 because they were desperate for pitching. And he thought he could get a few innings from him in the bullpen. And then he gave him that one start where he won an 11-inning complete game and then kept pitching him. Mm-hmm. But he, he also tells a story. In the third game of the 1951 playoff, Magley started the game walking the first two Dodgers. And that was the, if they lost that game, that was the end of the season and right. and they needed to win. So Leo said he went out and he started. First thing he did was he called down to the bullpen and says, warm up another pitcher. We're taking him out. And he goes on and says, I'm taking you out. You're not pitching hard enough. He said, Magli said, don't you take me out. And they were, again, in the biography, they don't use the actual language, but I got the sense that uh, they were, cursing very loudly at each other. And Magley says, you can't take me out. He said, well, all right, I'll leave you in for one more batter. And then Magley gets the next guy to fly out and get the next guy to hit it on double play and then pitches eight innings in the game. And he only did give up four runs. But, you know, in in the polo grounds, obviously the Giants came back and won that game. So he held the Dodgers where he needed to. He said that was the key. you got to get Magley mad. If you get him mad, he pitches his best. How should we remember Sal Magley? Well, first of all, you've got to remember him as Sal the Barber, the most feared pitcher of his day, the best pitcher some years, certainly 1950, 1951. But as somebody who everybody except his teammates were scared of, and I wouldn't even say, and maybe some of his teammates were scared of him. (laughs) And as a guy who wanted, a man who wanted so much to win that he was willing to not only get better at pitching, but transform himself for each game.
0: Interesting. Peter, and I want to...
1: Yeah, go ahead. Go I ahead. was going to say, someone we should still revere, and I think to this day, we still do.
0: Very cool. Peter, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Are you working on any other bios for the uh, bio project for Saber? Any, uh, any writing going on?
1: I am actually... Uh, well, not for the bio project, but I actually just completed a history of the Tampa Bay Rays. Oh, wow. First season for a pro- the next Sabre project. We're trying to get, we're putting out something on all the expansion teams. Every player who ever played in the first season of an expansion team with a team history of their first year. So I, I completed that. That'll be coming out next year. And uh-huh. it looks like I, I've been asked to and probably will. Write the entire Tampa Bay Rays history for the Saber website. Uh, I'm excited to do it as a Rays fan. Uh, with all due respect to my fellow Rays fans out there, I didn't get the sense that there were a ton of people vying for that particular <laughs> job. Uh, it was, but I'm excited about it. I'm I do I've come to come to revere the Rays and their current management. Uh huh. And I'm I'm excited to do that and contribute uh, what I can.
0: I actually saw the Rays' first ever game. I went. They played the Tigers. I still have the ticket stub and the special commemorative ticket, which was in the shape of a
1: Devil Ray. Oh, wow. Yeah,
0: I have that. I'm looking at it right now.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. I went to the first ever game. It was against the Detroit Tigers. I remember Mm -hmm. it well. I remember it well.
1: Wade Boggs hit a home run, but the Rays lost. Yep. So but that was the, the highlight of their season was they, they started by taking two or three from the Tigers
0: and then it was and like, downhill. I went
1: downhill from there. Yeah, yeah.
0: Hey, again, Peter, thank you so much for joining me on sports forgotten heroes. I hope you would consider coming back again sometime.
1: Anytime, Warren. I'm, I'm happy to help you. I had a great time talking about a, a great player and I would love to do it again.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome.
0: Magley's first year, 1945, he went 5-4 for the Giants, tossed three shutouts, and had a total of seven complete games to go along with the 2.35 ERA. But it just wasn't good enough to stick with New York, and that's when his career hit some bumps. The minor leagues and the Mexican League were up next for the barber, but it all turned for him in 1950 at the age of 33 when he got another chance with the Giants and he went 18-4 and with a 2.71 ERA. He tossed five shutouts and completed 12 games. Between 1950 and 1954, Magley went 81-33, and a winning percentage of 7-10. Overall for his career, Magley was 119-62, and a winning percentage of 6.57, with a 3.15 ERA. Certainly a solid career. Thanks again to my guest today, Peter Gordon. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we'll take a look back at the career of Lefty O'Doul. And while many of you might know Lefty, his contributions to the game off the field and how he ended up one of the game's great hitters is a story a forgotten story that has to be told. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.